This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast and YouTube channel, Spirit Matters Talk, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Uh, found at all the podcast sites. And if you go to YouTube and type in Spirit Matters Talk, those three words, uh, you'll uh, get uh, many, many of our interviews, at least the last, uh, the ones we've done in the last six or eight months. Uh, we have about 300 shows in our archives. Everything's free and uh, available to the public. If anybody, uh, uh, anybody out there who's contributed to help keep us on the air, we appreciate that. And if anybody would like to be a contributor, uh, go to Spirit Matters Talk and check the website there and it'll tell you what to do. We are not a nonprofit, so it wouldn't be a donation, a contribution. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, we have a tremendous archive of uh, wonderful guests and we have <clears throat> a very uh, wonderful guest today. Uh, his name is Arthur Agajaninian, which I want you to pronounce, Arthur, because I am confident I mispronounced that. Agajanian. Agajanian. So it's actually very simple. He writes on visual culture as a Christian contemplative. His essays explore the ways images help us understand deeper truths in our shared human experience and have has appeared in numerous magazines and journals. Uh, uh, Phil, I'd like you to uh, maybe mention the specific way. It's a wonderful website you have. And uh, we want to really emphasize that people should go to that website to get a real introduction to Arthur and uh, and his work. Phil, it's a beautiful it? website and it's uh, imageandfaith.com. Uh, and that'll be on our... We'll have that posted. Yeah. Arthur, welcome. Um, I have interviewed a great number of people who rejected or walked away from or somehow felt alienated from the uh, religious tradition they were raised from in and then turned to the east for their spiritual sustenance and then returned with a new perspective and a new orientation to the religion of their birth coming at it from a different perspective from your bio, you seem to fit that uh, pattern. So tell us your story. Tell us how you came to your, your spiritual perspective. I'd be happy to. And uh, thank you both for having me. It's an honor to be here with both of you. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, well, I was born and raised as a Christian in an Armenian family. And the Armenian Apostolic Church is the center of the Armenian community worldwide throughout the diaspora and in Armenia. And that was really what tied together uh, and united the Armenian community in the Washington DC area where I grew up. And I always had a fairly comfortable relationship with Christianity, but as I got older, and became interested in exploring other paths, I was really drawn to Eastern traditions because of their emphasis on experience as opposed to doctrine. And it was through this process of exploring and, and practicing and studying the philosophies and the beliefs and the practices of Buddhism and Vedanta and then eventually becoming really 
engage with contemporary non-dual practices as those became more readily available and more widespread. Um, lectures and uh, teachers became more readily available through technology. Uh, I began to recognize that the thing that was most significant for me and which really drew me to those Eastern religions was the non-dual aspect, which was uh, a way really that I, I suppose I was very comfortable with in terms of my view of the world. Uh, I was trained as an artist and I've always been comfortable with paradox and ambiguity. And this together with the experience, experiential element of Eastern tradition made it very uh, attractive for me and very significant for me. Then over time, I came to be exposed to the mystical tradition in Christianity and then recognizing that this same non-dual aspect is uh, part and parcel of the mystical path brought me back with a strong curiosity to Christianity to see what was there and what I had missed and what wasn't being taught widely. And through contemporary uh, Christian mystical teachings, and then eventually uh, learning more about the historical context and uh, older writings, and then being exposed to more of the the uh, Christian practices that are embedded in the mystical path, I found my home back in Christianity with a renewed enthusiasm mm -hmm. and um, having now discovered a great rich foundation to center myself in, as it were. Uh, Arthur, I read that you were a uh, <clears throat> member, a part of the <clears throat> Los Angeles chapter of the International uh, Thomas Merton Society. Uh, through Holy Spirit Retreat Center in uh, California. And um, uh, I, I, I'm wondering if Thomas Merton was a big influence on you. And uh, did Thomas Merton speak uh, about non-duality in Christianity? Uh, and is there any conflict that those in Christianity, uh, theologians, especially from your tradition of uh, Christianity, uh, find a conflict with non-duality since the church obviously is very Christ-centric. Well, as far as Merton goes, his writing has always resonated for me. And I first became aware of him probably through his availability through popular culture and in sort of larger literary and philosophic uh, history and, and circles. And um, so I was curious and uh, began to read his work and to study him a little bit more closely. And in the Thomas Burton learning process, um, I began to find much that resonated with my own experience. And um, I think the reason he's so popular among so many people uh, who are very much engaged in their spiritual lives and, and many Christians is because he does speak so well to our current circumstances. Uh, we often find when we're discussing Merton uh, that we see a lot of what he's been talking about as 
relevant to today, as though he were alive and writing today, whether it's um, civil rights, uh, social justice, political circumstances, consumer society. So he very much resonates uh, with the world of today. And he's very much in line with the mystical writers of the past. Uh, and as far as whether or not uh, non-duality agrees with my own tradition in terms of Armenian Christianity, there are mystics in every nation and throughout the history of uh, Christianity. So it really, I, I guess it depends on who you're talking to and who they're looking at as, as influences in, in, in their own faiths. Um, and there are different, I guess, uh, more progressive and more conservative individuals in every church. Mm -hmm. So part of the process of meeting kindred spirits is just talking to people and learning more about where people are coming from and what's influenced them and recognizing that Christianity is a very broad area uh, that there have been many Christianities throughout history and that uh, there are many different ways into it. So I don't know if that quite answers your question, but again, there are, it's uh, the non-dual aspect of Christianity is something that uh, has drawn a lot of people. Um, it's becoming more and more uh, right. commonplace. And um, it's something that is found in popular writers like Burton and recognized in, in, in writers like Burton very broadly, I think. Phil, I don't hear you. I muted myself because there was uh, extraneous noise from the <laughs> gardener gardening next door. Um, it's, a, it's amazing how, how often Merton comes up in our interviews. Uh, we've had Richard Rohr on, we've had Jim Finley on, uh, any number of people, especially people drawn to the Christian mystical tradition, but not only them. It, it's, it's quite uh, interesting how influential he was. And I always felt it was a great tragedy that he, he died uh, just as, this the whole uh, turn to the east was really booming. He would have been uh, amazed at what's happened since. But um, I'm curious what you said about, um, of course, is uh, is true about the variety within the Christian mystical with uh, well Christianity in general. Um, and most of the um, I, you you kind of answered this, but um, the Christian mystics that most of us have come across are from Spain and uh, Germany and Meister Eckhart and, and, and uh, places like that. Uh, and so I was gonna ask you if there's a, an, a, an embedded uh, mystical tradition in, in the Armenian uh, tradition and how that is um, portrayed or not portrayed by the, the uh, mainstream of, of that church and how people in your circle, your family, your friends, other fellow Armenian Christians uh, react to your orientation? Well, that's a really good question, Phil. I think that there isn't a clear, strong, non-dual mystical 
sound coming out of the Armenian community because the, the church is very traditional. But when you look closely at uh, the historical figures of the Armenian church, uh, the great writers and poets and theologians, there's a very strong mystical strain throughout their work. And you, you'll find that many of them have lived um, as these European monks and mystics that we're more familiar with uh, have and have been very significant in terms of their contribution to Armenian history, uh, to Armenian um, art, and to Armenian literature. And because the Armenian church is part of the larger Eastern church, the larger Eastern Orthodox church, there is a, a strong resonance between practices in the Armenian church and the theology of the Armenian church with the larger Eastern church. And that in itself aligns really well with the mystic tradition because the Eastern church is more oriented towards the embodiment, for example, of prayer, um, an engagement with sacred imagery, which is my main area of work. And a lot of the same sorts of um, concerns and emphases in terms of theology, in terms of art, in terms of practices, um, can there's, there's a resonance there between the Armenian church and the larger Eastern church. Um, and so oftentimes in the popular literature, uh, we go to look at the mystics uh, who are in the Eastern church or the Orthodox church. And we find that a lot of that is also shared by the Armenian church. So I would say that for me, it's an ongoing exploration um, in turning back to my roots in Christianity. I'm turning in doubly to my roots in the Armenian tradition in an exploration of something that's specific to my own uh, heritage. And um, I'm in uh, the process actually of uh, learning more and talking to experts on, on that history uh, to find some very specific um, connections between the Armenian church and the larger mystical tradition that we know of mostly through uh, Europe, through um, the various well-known figures like St. John of the Cross or St. Teresa of Avila, or you mentioned, for example, Meister Eckhart. Uh, Arthur, um, you consider yourself a, uh, a Christian uh, contemplative. Uh, usually when we think of a, a Christian contemplative, most of those I've, I've encountered are, are monks or, or people that are either brothers or, or uh, have taken some vows. Uh, although I, I don't know anything that would prevent somebody who's living in the world with a family from being a Christian contemplative. So I'm wondering what if, if you are more of the, the monk type or more person living in the world. And also uh, in terms of your uh, contemplative practice or practices, I know you are uh, very involved, I read, with the imagery of art and how that relates to spirituality. So I guess two things. One is your particular path and uh, uh, do you use in your own practice and practice, you might teach others uh, the imagery of art 
to um, develop that uh, th- as as a contemplative practice to develop your spirituality? Well, I'm very much living in the world. Um, uh, I'm an educator uh, and a writer uh, as well. And one of the most important things um, that the uh, Trappist monk, um, Thomas Keating, uh, introduced, and this was in the 1970s, to the um, larger Christian community, along with um, two other monks that were with him uh, in Spencer, Massachusetts, at the monastery uh, where he worked and lived. Um, It was this idea of bringing the contemplative practice into the lives of people regardless of uh, who they were, where they were living, or under what circumstances, to make contemplative prayer and contemplative life more accessible. And so they developed what's known as centering prayer, which is a form of Christian meditation. And so this is something that is very much, um, there's a large community of contemplatives throughout the world, uh, many of whom I know uh, through the work that I'm doing uh, with uh, contemplatives and conversation, as well as in my contemplatives and conversation uh, Facebook group. Um, and we're all practicing similar types of uh, uh, well, we're using similar practices in our, in our Christian lives and we're reading similar things and we're speaking in a language that we can all understand. And it's really something that has to do with the way you order your life. Uh, it's not about escaping into a world where you're isolated from everyday problems. It's about engaging with the world and engaging with the everyday in a way that's mindful and in a way that uh, accepts the challenges uh, of the mind uh, and its chatter and welcomes and embraces uh, a way of living with silence. And that is the contemplative mode. Um, As far as the use of images, that's something that it's a coming together of my passions. My background is as an artist. I've studied and worked with art history, both as an educator um, and as an artist um, for all of my adult life. And when I began to develop my spiritual practice um, and got a little ways into um, Christian contemplation, I was able to bring these things together and I started to look at art in a different way. And I started to recognize that there was this really rich history and practice of uh, understanding religion through um, artworks and vice versa. So if we think about something like art and theology, we're talking about really the relationship of God, faith, and theology to human perception. So the imagination and sensation Uh, Also, there's that connection to beauty and the arts. So there are questions like, how do we understand the influence of visual culture on the worship life of the church? So my interest in visual culture, it's bringing it back and focusing it on 
uh, the religious aspects of one's life. What is theological? What is a theological understanding of beauty, and what does that imply for the arts? Uh, what role does the imagination play in theological methods? Uh, these types of um, the answers to these uh, types of questions will elucidate complexities, issues, and a range of um, subject matter having to do with theological aesthetics. So when we look at our spiritual life through imagery, we're brought into uh, a new awareness of the world around us because all of our spiritual understanding and our sense of who we are in the world is mediated through images and objects. So whether we're talking about judgments about perception or beauty uh, and the arts, we, we think about them in relation to God or to sacred values. Um, this is about sense knowledge, um, feeling, taste, imagination, again, a big part of this. And we're talking about then art as a source of theology. So how does art shape meaning in today's culture? Uh, what is the essential role of imagination in theology? Um, looking at art as an important theological text, which complements a written word, mm -hmm. uh, it communicates you know, the Christian message. And then there's also, of course, artistic means that are used in uh, communal, uh, communal uh, worshiping traditions um, and then sacred rituals. So mm. we're, we're understanding the sacred through images. And that's become an area that I become very invested in um, and which has really deepened my own spiritual life. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, looking at the history of art, uh, European art especially, um, art has been used, and by we're talking about mainly painting and sculpture, visual arts have been used in a kind of didactic way historically to teach, you know, painting biblical themes and use of symbols and so forth. Uh, but then there's also art or the aesthetic experience as a door into spiritual experience. And there seems there's kind of two things going on here. I mean, I, I have been deeply moved in, in, in a sort of transcendent way by beautiful works of art that uh, have nothing to do with representation of anything. You know, it could be Mondrian or so, whatever it is. And um, so there's the uh, experiencer of the art, the viewer, and what that evokes. And I, I'm, I understand your work to be helping people get the most out of that. And I'd like to hear how you do it. But the other is the, the, the doing of art, which is evocative of spiritual experience in a whole different way for the artist. And you're both. So that's a, that's a lot. Uh, there's a uh, you know, dozen questions embedded in what I just said. So take it wherever. <clears throat> well, um, so I, I'd like to share uh, a couple of things. One, um, Thomas Merton's name came up. Um, and I have a great quote from Merton that um, relates to art. And the quote is, Art enables us to find ourselves and lose ourselves at the same time. The mind 
discovers a spiritual vitality that lifts it above itself, takes it out of itself, and makes it present to itself on a level of being that it did not know it could ever achieve. That's great. So when we're engaged with an artwork and we're bringing a spiritual understanding to our experience, there are a number of things that happen. I mean, I can describe the process uh, as we commonly find it in experience. First, we're experiencing or we're perceiving the work through the senses, right? It's coming in through, depending on what it is. So if it's, if it's music, it's coming in through our ears. If it's art, it's coming in through our eyes. If it's film, it's coming in through our ears and our eyes. Um, there's an impression that's made on our senses. And then that we, that's something that we project inward and it acts on our imagination. And then there's a deep contemplative dimension of the mind. And it's the same dimension in which the artist conceived the work. We're going to that same place, that same depth. And there's a true, deep, vivid experience of perceiving art that we could say is really undifferentiated from the experience that the artist had in creating it. And art then can be seen to turn the person beholding it in a sense, into an artist, the viewer, the listener, or the reader, if we're talking about literature or poetry, actually creates or recreates the work in their own imagination. And that recreative act points to really a new level of being, or we could say a new kind of consciousness, which we didn't originally have access to. So when we engage with the art through a communion, an understanding, and then that recreation, our minds open up and the intelligible world begins to unfold more fully for us because we're going to that contemplative place. There's a contemplative experience that happens in perceiving art in an undisturbed, quiet, uh, deep uh, way Actually, it's something that I'd always done when I was younger. I've done throughout my life, but I didn't have a name for it. I was being contemplative in front of artwork. I was not allowing myself to get distracted or disturbed, spending time alone with art in order to really engage with it in a deep way. And that was, again, it was a contemplative process. It's not something, though, that is common, unfortunately, in the experience of, of viewing art in person because... There are a lot of distractions, uh, even in a museum and a gallery, and people often don't want to take the time to really go to this deep contemplative place. And there's also um, a sense that many people have that the art should somehow tell them what it's about, or there should be some sort of an explanation, whereas really it's supposed to be a, a meeting place between the viewer and the work, what the artist put out there and the viewer in a contemplative circumstance so that there can be this unfolding uh, of the experience uh, for the viewer. Right. Uh, Arthur, you mentioned Thomas Keating. I, I actually spent some time at St. Joseph's Abbey and got to know uh, Thomas Keating and Basil Pennington very well. The other, they're both past now, wonderful men. And did you, you want to spread that? I was, was actually teaching TM back then and 
Uh, there was a big course we gave for them and I, I got to spend time and over the decades got to know them pretty well. <clears throat> um, uh, one question I had, and again, bringing the, the, those gifts of the contemplatives to the, 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 the world, uh, you are Armenian. In the 20th century, um, the Armenian people went through very, very difficult times. And I'm wondering in, in uh, and I'm sure family members and all my Armenian friends have many stories to tell and their parents, their grandparents. And it's, it's hard. Uh, it, it was very difficult, as you, as you know better than me. Uh, these, these contemplative practices through, through imagery and art and other contemplative practices uh, uh, that, that you are uh, familiar with, uh, have they been used in, in, in healing for people that have gone through these difficult times? And I would think, uh, and I'm thinking because somebody who is Armenian is going to be, just like somebody who's Jewish, is going to be very, very connected to people who have gone through very difficult times collectively and individually. And, and I would think that uh, these gifts of the contemplative uh, would be uh, uh, tools to help move through that. That's a really good point. Um, there certainly is uh, an intergenerational trauma as um, a result of the genocide. Uh, we're coming up on uh, the um, anniversary uh, in, on April 24th, actually, of, of the, um, of the uh, Armenian genocide. Uh, the, the question of healing is, is a big one. Uh, I think that uh, even though you're pointing to something specific in history and something that's occurred to a particular group of people, everybody has their trauma. And, and uh, the thing that I find really fascinating about what's happening right now in our larger culture is that with all of the emphasis, and I see this particularly in education, all of the emphasis nowadays on social emotional health and people's um, spiritual and physical and mental well-being, so much of this, uh, which is oftentimes treated with mindfulness and meditation, is in line with these ancient practices that come from uh, Christianity, uh, as well as from the East. Um, but of course, in the secular world, there isn't that religious context for it, which for me gives it its, its depth and its profundity. Um, and so I, I think that any kind of contemplative practice is beneficial for the human being, regardless of personal or collective trauma. And uh, it would be a great thing to see the Armenian church taking this up, taking up contemplative Christianity in a very, uh, in a purposeful and uh, directed way. I, I think though that the Armenian church is very much um, sort of connected to its own tradition and very much focused on maintaining its tradition and its institutions. Um, and because the population is relatively small, the Armenian population mm -hmm. worldwide is relatively small, uh, there hasn't been this kind of uh, meeting of traditions where um, the contemplative tradition can really inform uh, the Armenian church and the Armenian community in a way that will be widespread and, and really beneficial. But hopefully that's something that, 
that will eventually come as the world seems to be getting smaller all the time and communication is constantly um, sort of increasing between fields and churches and cultures. Uh, Arthur, uh, we don't have much time. I'd like to uh, have, a, have you close with some advice for our uh, viewers and listeners. Now that uh, presumably, hopefully, COVID is uh, easing up and people can go to places like museums again, mm -hmm. um, what advice would you give people about the viewing experience? And I'm, I love museums. I've had deep, profound experiences in them. And I favor them when it's not crowded. <laughs> and if you're lucky, you can arrange that or uh, have that happen. But in recent years, prior to COVID, the previous five or so years, every time I've been to a museum, I got very irritated by the predominance of cell phone use and people posing by the pictures I want to just look at and people walking around snapping and never even looking live. They're just looking through their viewer and collecting photographs of, of paintings. And so um, I'm anticipating going to the rebuilt Museum of Modern Art in New York as soon as I can and other places. And uh, maybe you have some advice for us other than banning cell phones from. <laughs> well, I guess there isn't too much we can do about uh, other people's habits, <laughs> but oh, I guess a starting place would be to find uh, a time that's very unpopular, um, right. avoid the holidays. Right. Um, we have uh, a similar problem here in LA with places like the Getty and yeah. LACMA. Right. Um, when I visit DC, my hometown, um, you know, it's, it's in the summer or it's in the winter. And so there are a lot of tourists and the national gallery and other major museums can get really, uh, crazy. So starting with going perhaps during the week, um, taking time off from work, uh, if that's what you need to do, um, Reducing distractions as much as possible. Uh, and I would say to uh, a lot of people don't like to do things like that alone, but I think if you go alone, yeah. it's better because you don't need to compromise with somebody else's attention span or needs or uh, objectives. Um, and when you walk into a, if you're in a museum, you walk into a gallery and you just sort of scan I recommend going to whatever pulls you intuitively, whatever draws you to it. And then, um, then spending time with that. It's, it's always, I think it's always better to spend more time with fewer things and go right. deeper than it is to try to get a scan to say, okay, well, I'm going to familiarize myself with the entire um, Asian collection of uh, the Norton Simon museum or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 Fewer, fewer works and go, go more in, in depth. Um, I like to spend the time uninterrupted and without any mediation between me and the work when I'm in the museum. Then I will look at the supporting materials, catalogs, 
uh, brochures, audio tours, what, a lot of which you can get now outside of the museum later on, and um, take take those things in to supplement my visit afterwards. But when I'm there, I don't want um, a docent tour. Um, I don't want to spend too much time with text. Um, and uh, I want to make sure that I'm able to spend as much time as I need with each work uh, and not rush through. So again, it's about concentrating. It's about mm. quiet. It's about being mindful with the work. And you have to allow time for it to open up for you. It's not going to grab you by the collar and, and force your attention. It's, it's something that you need to be open to and you need to allow to unfold and you need to provide the circumstances for that to happen. So those are conscious choices you make about your planning and your organizing and where you go and how much time you spend. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, love to have you back on because there's many more things we could discuss. Phil, you want to mention the website one more? It's a wonderful website. Those listening, Thank you. please go to it. And also those listening in, please, uh, it would be, we appreciate it. There's no cost to doing it. Hit the subscribe button, whether you're listening or watching. Uh, but go ahead, Phil, if you could. Yeah, Arthur's it. website is imageandfaith.com. And I would recommend go ahead, going to the page of essays. Um, because, uh, he has a lot of essays having to do with art. But even if you just look at the images on that page, because each essay has a, a, a great work of art uh, illustrating it. I see uh, uh, Matisse, for example. So um, that, that would be an experience in and of itself. Thank so you. I there's also another um, component to my, uh, to my larger project uh, where I'm taking the idea of contemplatives and conversation, which is my group that I meet with uh, in the online meditation chapel every week. And I'm having one-on-one -on -one conversations with other people who are working in the area of art and theology. And we're discussing specific subjects that relate to that. Uh, and then that those conversations are taking um, written form and then getting published. So that's, that's another ah. uh, kind of um, written um, project that's part of uh, the larger work I'm doing and that I'm really enthusiastic about as well. I'll let uh, some of my artist friends know. That's great. That sounds great. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. And continued success with your good work. And uh, maybe I'll bump into you at the Getty or LACMA before be I move to the East Coast in a few weeks. <laughs> Take good care. All Thank right. you, Philip. Thank you, Dennis.